Welcome to a Martin Luther King Jr. Day edition of Radioactive, the show that plugs you into your community weeknights at 6. I'm Laura Jones, and we're going to do a round of Music Meets Activism in honor of Dr. King. Sean Newell has agreed to join me tonight, talk about his journey, and a playlist of his own to match. He is the retired vice president of business development at Industrial Supply Company, where he worked for 37 years, and he now serves as a community integrator, working as the vice president of the Salt Lake branch of the NAACP. He's a former commissioner of the governor's Martin Luther King Jr. Human Rights Commission and is co-chair of the Utah Black Roundtable. He is also a Cottonwood Heights City Councilman. He's even busier in retirement. In fact, now a member of KRCL's Community Advisory Board. As you can imagine, with all of that on his plate, he's very busy this weekend and especially today. So we met at KRCL Studios to record the following conversation. Enjoy. So for the record, give me your name and how you'd like to be identified for the purposes of this interview. Um, Sean Newell. The identification is a hard part because I do so many things. Um, Let's just dive in then, shall we? I would just say community integrator. Yeah? Yeah. Since your earliest days, right? Very early days. All right, we're rolling. (laughs) Let's go to, is it grade school or junior high? Paint a picture for where you were then and what your neighborhood was like versus where you went to school. Um, My neighborhood... um, when I first um, started school in kindergarten was probably 99% black. And then my parents moved. Uh, fortunately, my mother knew the mayor's wife. So they were one of a few families that were able to integrate into a new neighborhood um, where I moved to starting my first grade year. So what happened when we moved there is it changed the boundaries for the school district that I was supposed to go to. What are we talking? California? This is California. This is Riverside, California, back in 1966. 1966, 67 is when they moved. And, um, you know, I went from, I finished my year at the kindergarten where I was, and it it had just started being integrated as well because it was part of the school system um, shift that they made in 1965. But in 67, I should say 68, uh, when we moved, I was put into a busing program to go to a predominantly white school district. We actually had a school that was built for our community called Lowell Elementary. Our community, meaning the black community or the Uh, community? for the black community. It was a black and Hispanic community. Mm -hmm. And um, the current superintendent at that time had made a decision that he was going to try a new project and do some reverse desegregation. And when the community caught word of that, interestingly, uh, Lowell Elementary was burnt to the ground. Uh, Just like not a very short time after that. Brand new, burnt to the ground. Brand new, burnt to the ground. And it stayed, the skeleton there stayed all the way through uh, probably my junior high school years before they decided to demolish it. Um, So it was kind of a... um, postmark for all of us that were in the busing program to say, hey, you know, something something was going on here. And being a youngster, you don't really know these things. Um, you kind of have an idea because uh, older people in the community are talking about it in meetings that you, you know, lay on the floor and stick your ear to the door and hear. <laughs> um, but it was, it became really apparent to me once I got to high school, um, you know, what 
actually my community had done to be able to provide us with this opportunity. You showed me a picture when we were talking about doing this conversation. Can you describe that for our listeners? Yeah, it's a picture of, and I have about six of them all the way through elementary school, a picture of me and my classmates. And there's four to five um, people of color in each of those pictures only. And those are classes of uh close to 25, 30 kids. And that was my experience going through elementary school. I, I lived in a black and Hispanic neighborhood, but I was bused to a predominantly white school and the stress and pressures of that, going to a place where you really weren't accepted or wanted and having to navigate that. Even though I was the third class of students to be part of this program um, and or this change, I should say, it was still really difficult because uh, there were a lot of animosities that existed. So making friends, you know, white friends was really difficult. And I only had one in elementary and I'll never forget him. His name was Mark Moran. Um, His family was in the air force. So when they moved there, you know, they were used to being around people of all different ethnicities and cultures and everything. And he and I became really good friends, but it helped me to really start to, struggle with um, the realities of where I was. When I would go to his home, um, the students that I even went to school with, they weren't allowed to play with us. So Mark and I were kind of on our own, doing our own thing. And it struck me, and I had talked to my father about it. He, my father was my one of my greatest mentors. What was his name? And James Duell. And um, he he said, you know, this is the way of the world right now. He said, it's it's sad but true. He said, but hold on to the friendships that you do make. Um, you know, even though others will not accept you, those that do are going to be your strength. When you'd go home after school, how were you treated being the black kid bus to the white school? That was one of the hard things is we had a battle, you know, at school, but then we'd also have to come home. And when we came home and, um, you know, just two blocks away where all my friends were living, you know, you ride your bike over there and they're, they're giving you a hard time saying, oh, you guys think you're so good. You're too good for us because you get to go to this school. And, you know, a lot of those things came from conversations as I got older, I realized, came from conversations that the adults and parents were having and trying to make sure that their had, kids had the same opportunities. Now, I didn't see it as an opportunity back then. <laughs> I, I just saw the struggle and I was fortunate enough to have parents that said, you know, you have to fight through this. This brings us to the first song on your playlist tonight for Music Meets Activism. It's a Stevie Wonder classic. Tell us what it is and why you chose it. Um, I chose this song because it was from 1973. I think it was 73. And it just kind of reflects some of the feelings I had about being superstitious about people and being fearful of spaces, uh, not knowing how to navigate them, you know, and and trying to figure out where I was. But it allowed me that, that it, it gave me that energy to kind of say, you know, it's it's everywhere and <laughs> just pay attention. But it is also a great song. It also just energized me. Some superstition, Stevie yes. Wonder on KRCL. <laughs> Music meets activism with Sean Newell. The Beat Goes On, Whispers on KRCL 90.9. It's radioactive around of music meets activism with my guest tonight, Sean Newell. And we've been talking about growing up in Southern California. You know what? I think you're a few years ahead of me, but I was in Carlsbad. 
not that far from Riverside, as far as I'm aware. And uh, I don't remember that much about those times, but it's interesting to think that here we are today, and we we may have been in the same community and didn't know it. (laughs) Big time. And, you know, I wanted to talk about that. As you start to grow up and start to understand more for yourself what's going on between class, between race, between men and women, um, we get to this The Beat Goes On song. And that was just, uh, it was a song that I heard every weekend at the Roller Ring. And um, that was one of the big, um, you know, places for us to go to hang out as, as young people, um, as the Roller Rink. And of course, there was girls there. That was one of the other parts. But, uh. <laughs> There's a whole documentary about Roller Rinks and their importance in the black community in particular. Yes, yes. And it was, it was a huge gathering place for us as, as young people. And it was a great gathering place. And, you know, one of the nice things about it is it was themed you know, for each day of the week. Um, but it was affordable and it was a place that we could go. And my parents knew I had a great passion for it. It kept me out of trouble too. So they even bought me a custom pair of roller skates that I still have to this day that I keep because of that reason. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. All right. I want to get to a couple other songs here on your list. We've got some cool in the gang coming up, some CC Peniston, but we're going to go straight to the heavy D got me waiting. Is this part of your your journey as uh, self-aware, coming into activism at all? Yeah, this was, you know, these songs, um, especially songs like um, from some of the early uh, orators or rappers, (laughs) um, really kind of motivated me into starting to have some consciousness about things that were going on around me and having the ability after coming out of college uh, and being in college also – to realize that I had a, an opportunity to be part of the solution. And, you know, you hear all the time people saying, well, you know, this is going on and they're whining and crying. And I thought, uh, I, I can't do that. I have to do something. I can't, I can't just be a moaner and a groaner. And I, a lot of that came from my background in athletics. I played football at the University of Utah. And um, all the way through my time playing sports, I learned you know, self-discipline. I learned that there is equity when equity is, um, you know, presented in a way that, you know, I, I should say there's, there's equity in sports, unlike in a lot of other places where if you can perform, you get the job. Yeah. I was going to say, <laughs> if you can perform, you can get the job. It's very tangible. It's very tangible. And when I stepped outside of the um, athletic realm, I didn't see that. I didn't see equity in the same way. And that was really just, just concerning to me. I just thought, how in the world can we have a, a space where even those on the outside of athletics come together you know, for something, and they're 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 actually driving toward a, a common goal to win, and we can't do that as a society. We can't do that in the workplace. We can't seem to do that anywhere else. Heavy D got me waiting. Yes. Heavy D got me waiting. A song on the playlist of my guest this evening, Sean Newell, and I wanted to go back to you and your football days. So obviously high school, the University of Utah. What era was that? What years? And this was 1980. I came to University of Utah, and uh, it was a really different 
experience. Talk to me about that because, again, I lag you by a couple of years, and mm-hmm. I remember in the mid-'80s the um, uh, anti-apartheid movement on campus, and I'm kind of curious what campus student politics were like while you were there and a football player. Um, we were we were kind of um, separated from most everything that was going on on campus, and I think that was done purposefully to keep us, you know, out of trouble for focused. the most part and focused. <laughs> yeah, they. I mean, as a student athlete, you really don't get a lot of time to become a part of the institution that you're attending. And that was something that I really missed out on. And that was also a driver for me to go back to school um, to be able to experience those things as well. Um, I actually went into the NFL for a little while. So when I came back from playing football there, I was able to actually engage as a full student, as a real student. We just jumped right over your transition to the NFL, so you got to give me that story in the year. Paint a picture for us. Uh, The NFL stands for not for long when it comes to me. Um, I was um, able to play as a free agent uh, for the Chicago Bears back in, it was uh, the end of 83, part of 84. Um, And I ended up getting injured my first year, so I spent my whole um, career on injury reserve. And um, it gave me a lot of time to actually reflect and to actually get out into the community. Um, being injured when the rest of the team was off, um, you know, playing a game or something, they would have me represent the um, team. That I, I did a, a lecture for a youth football program. So the first time I ever spoke in public was in front of 500-some-odd parents and <laughs> young football players in the Chicago area. But it also gave me an opportunity to see more of our country and to see the division. The Illinois and Chicago was very divided. Um, I'm I, not sure it's any better today, but... It's really not. When you look yeah. at the changes that have taken place with places like Cabrina Green that were just mowed over from what I hear now and doesn't even exist, mm-hmm. the um, gentrification of, of areas was is, is still now... We just built over problem. our problems. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm, I talk to people that live there now and they're telling me it's a completely different place. And when, when I was there, it was so segregated that people still, they wouldn't even look at each other. I have a story about when we did a Christmas drive with the Bears. So I'm, I'm on two, we have two buses with the team. We went and bought groceries for the community and, and, and not just the black community, but every community. So we went to Cicero, which is the Italian community there in Chicago. And we had groceries and we were taking them to a woman's home and walked up to the door, knocked on the door. And at the doorway on the porch was Walter Payton, myself. Um, I think there was Richard Dent and there was someone else that was there. And the rest of the team was kind of standing, you know, outside. And the woman would not even open the door for us to receive these groceries. She said, leave them on the porch. Um, I'm not opening the door for you. And it just struck me and just to think, how in the world could you have this much hate and 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 just denial of humans that are giving you something for your survival? Yeah. And it just broke my heart. So from Riverside, California, to the Chicago Bears, to doing this project in Chicago, there's been this progression for yourself. Um, the awakening of an adult, of a black man, of someone who's gone to the NFL and his career isn't going to be a long one. Mm-hmm. And you decide what? I decided that I, I 
needed to do something. I mean, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I needed to show up. So when I came back, I started getting involved with the NAACP. Um, I had been a voting district chairman for one of our congressmen um, back, you know, during that time to try to help myself integrate into the community because I knew I was going to be here for a little while. Here in Utah? Yeah, I didn't want to be here forever. (laughs) I was planning to leave and go to California. My wife is from Southern California as well, which is a whole other story. She's from Orange County, Newport Beach, so totally different backgrounds. Um, but I decided that I needed to do something. I was, I still kept seeing things happening over and over again in our community and in our country. And I thought, you know what, I I just can't sit sit by the side and and watch this happen. Now I did almost leave Utah back in the early eighties. I discussed this with you a while ago when the, the two young black men were assassinated at Liberty park. I was living with some other student athletes, just blocks away, and I called home, and I told my father, they don't want me here. He said, you think they want you anywhere? He said, you're going to stay. He said, if you leave and run now, you're going to always run. So that was also another point that helped drive me into finding ways to help out our community to grow and bridge. We got the C.C. Peniston song coming up. But here we sit on Martin Luther King Day, uh, observed. What's your request to folks out there on how they spend this day or reflect on this day? Um, my, my biggest request is that people start to look inside themselves and find that piece of their heart to where they can allow a, um, an entrance of new ideologies and an open mindset. Um, we have to get to a point to where we're not afraid of each other, where we're willing to embrace one another for the, um, attributes and, um, the skill sets and the the new and interesting parts of others that can actually in, improve our lives just by having uh, some knowledge of what people are all about. And that might just start in this quote-unquote post-COVID environment, just talking to our, our neighbors again, taking a walk around the block and saying hello? Oh, big time. You know, it's for me, and even in my neighborhood, I walk my dog, and I have met so many of my neighbors doing that. Um, I also did, you know, knocking door-to-door, running for public office, but... Um, <laughs> Cottonwood Heights, the, City yes, Council. Yes, indeed. But taking that time to just walk around, talk to your neighbors, wave to your neighbors when they drive by. Um, Don't be fearful of that. Don't drop your head when you're seeing people in the grocery store. There are so many opportunities to engage. And sometimes just that simple smile makes all the difference in the world for an individual. And that gets us to CC Peniston. Keep on walking. Yes. <laughs> Tell me why you wanted to share this song on your Music Meets Activism playlist. It's just a motivator to, you know, keep on going no matter what you come up against. And, it, you know, sometimes the vocal part of it may veer off to love and everything else. But for the most part, it's talking about just keep on doing you. And that's what we do as individuals. But we also have to realize that while we're doing us, we are also included in this entire earth and this world with others. And we have to be willing to share. And keep on walking. And keep on walking. On KRCL Radio Active, Music Meets Activism with Sean Newell. Nurture the Creative Mind is an Ogden nonprofit that empowers and establishes self-value in youth through the arts while developing marketable skills. Learn more about Nurture's art classes and workshops by visiting nurturethecreativemind.org. 
Support for Radioactive on KRCL comes from Mark Miller Subaru and the Subaru Share the Love event, a partnership with local charities in delivering hope this holiday season. Learn more and info on how to get involved at markmillersubaru.com. Get down on it. Cool and the gang on the Music Meets Activism playlist of my guest this evening, Sean Newell. I'm Laura Jones, and these conversations are just meant to bring folks to your attention, talk about their work in the community. And Sean, I want folks to know a little bit more about all the things you do, because technically you're retired, but you're a city council person in Cottonwood Heights. You're on the NAACP with Janetta Williams. You're on the Higher Ed Commission, right? The, yeah, the Board of Higher Ed. We They changed our name from Regents to the Board of Higher Ed. <laughs> and today is Martin Luther King Day, the day that this uh, airs. And I'm curious what you feel is the state of higher ed, given your long experience here in Utah, where you weren't going to stay, <laughs> but you have for how long now? <laughs> I've been here for 40, almost 42 years here in Utah now. So almost 43 years. Wow. Yeah. It's been a long time. Education, the way we deliver it is in a state of flux. Big time, big time. And it's, I think one of the, one of the great things is here in Utah, the, the state of Utah is doing a great job in trying to improve the way that we deliver education. But one of the things that I always keep in mind as I do this work is that the, system of higher education was not designed to provide education for people in my demographic. Your and demographic being? Being in a person of color, being black male. It just was not. I mean, you go through history. Um, third grade was where many people dropped off from the education. And if they got to the eighth grade, they were really bright. And they were really the people that folks looked up to. Our system of education right now still has testing that is based on the third grade level. So we haven't really moved the needle an awful lot there. Um, For me, if I can find ways to bring about a different lens for our educational system to look at the way we deliver education, I'm I'm doing my part. Um, And I want people to realize also that are within my community that these opportunities exist for them and to overcome the fear and angst of attending institutions. Because they don't, many people in the black and Hispanic communities don't feel welcome in these institutions. And one of my biggest goals is to let them realize that they are welcome, but they also have to do their part. We can't just expect people to hold our hands all the way through the system, but we can find people that help us, help guide us through the system, which is what we really need to illuminate to folks who those folks are that can guide them, how they can guide them, and the opportunities that exist there financially. All right. You have been in Utah for four plus decades, and you understand a bit more about the community than you did when you first arrived as that young football player. You can translate, you can code switch. Where do you think we sit here on Martin Luther King Jr. Day observed when it comes to the challenges we have to make more progress, to keep that arc of the moral universe bending the right way? You know, and a lot of people disagree with me, but I think we do a great job here in Utah uh, with our engagement, with, with the try, and that's all we can expect of people, to try their best to um, find ways to innovate, find ways to um, 
create these intersections that are conducive to people coming together. Um, but we still have a long ways to go. Mm-hmm. There's still a lot of gaps there. And uh, the gaps are mostly from the four-letter word that I use all the time is fear. Yeah, fear of not understanding other people's fear of not wanting to give something up. We have this scarcity mentality in our society that we have to relinquish. Um, but I see Utah as taking the steps. We've have some really good leaders that have learned, and I've talked to them about it, and they've they've learned how to kind of navigate a little bit better, but they don't do it on their own. They're asking for help from community members, mm-hmm. but there's still also that necessity for resiliency because when they hear those little voices in the ear, like, why are you doing this? Yeah. What is, what are, what do you expect to have come out of this? Sometimes they pull back a little bit and I'm trying to tell them, Hey, be courageous. You be, be, a, be the monger of change. And guess what? Eventually folks will fall in step behind you. There's another fear too, I think of getting it wrong. Yeah. Um, of being, uh, wrong in public, uh, making a mistake in public and then therefore being voted off the Island. It's yeah. that social media, uh, mm-hmm. contradiction that I think we face. It's everybody wants to have a take. Everybody wants to be heard, and then there's the backlash if you don't say it just right. Yeah, you know, and we have to get over that. Mm-hmm. You can make mistakes as long as you're willing to learn what that mistake is. Yeah. And if we allow ourselves to be you know, courageous enough to, to make those mistakes and also know that there are those allies that will help us to overcome those mistakes, I think we'll be okay. And that's where the public has to be careful, you know. First, we have to look at ourselves as a public. <laughs> where are these Where are these um, responses coming from? Are we well? Um, you know, do we have the knowledge to be able to excoriate somebody for something that they said, not really having a full understanding of where they were coming from? And then what? Right? And then what? Yeah, exactly. So we have to make sure that we are. As when we're in dialogue with one another, that we're doing it in the right ways and that we set the norms in our conversations. And a lot of times I think when people make mistakes, they haven't set those norms up stating that I may say something here that doesn't work right for everybody. But guess what? I'm willing to learn from these mistakes as I state them. And I think people are really receptive to forgiveness. Well, this takes us to our last song, Lakeside. And before you you tell us about it and why we're going out with it, can you say something to the folks listening about um, getting involved? You know, we're trying to turn this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend into like a, a moment of service, community service. I don't know that that works for everybody who is tired and wants their, their ski day, right? <laughs> but um, getting engaged, because like you said earlier, when you got here and the, the killings at Liberty Park and you called your dad and said, I don't think they want me here. Well, son, I don't think they want you anywhere. I'm guessing that made you realize something about planting yourself and taking action. Mm-hmm. That that helped me to realize that I have to be one of those people with that courage. Um, and I think when we talk about engagement and, and I know there's a lot of people that say, what can I do? How can I do it? You just do. You can you just step into spaces that may be uncomfortable to you and learn. You know, we we get to a certain time in our lives where we forget that, you know, we can still develop and we can still grow. And we have to get past that that veil of, oh, I'm done. 
this is it for me. I worked for the same company for 37 years and I retired and people were like, what are you going to do? I said, this is what I'm not going to do is what I'm trying to figure out. <laughs> I'm going to keep at it. <laughs> How many, what other boards and things are you on that I, I didn't mention earlier? Cottonwood Heights City Council, NAACP, the Board of Higher Ed. Mm-hmm. I serve on the Board of the Road Home, um, the Board for Friends for Sight. Um, let's see, um, the Utah Black Round Table. And boy, I'm probably missing some, and somebody's going to be upset with me. But oh, they can call uh, and let us know. <laughs> yes, but I, I, you know, I, I've got all these different activities. Unfortunately, I've got a family that lets me do these things. But and you're now on the CAB Community Advisory Board here at KRCL. <laughs> yes, indeed. There, I just called and let you know. <laughs> this takes us to Lakeside. Tell us about Lakeside and all the way live. Why you want this song? This song resonates with me again when I was in the ninth grade in high school. I was, you know, a little knucklehead, you know, just like a a lot of kids. Um, But we had a church in our city that wanted to create a gathering place for the kids in our community. And they allowed us to have a DJ and a dance spot in the basement of this church. And this song was one of the songs that was played <laughs> that just got everybody on the dance floor. So I always remembered this song by Lakeside when, whenever, when I was a young person. It just, and even to this day, I play it on a regular basis just to remind me of that gathering place and the fact that we could come together and come together in a positive way, just shaking our groove thing. That sounds like an invitation to everybody listening <laughs> to come all the way live with us, yes, right? Yes, indeed. Sean Newell, thank you so much for coming in and talking Music Meets Activism with me today. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. It's Lakeside taking us out, radioactive only on KRCL. Have a great night, Sean. Yeah, thank you very much.